Uh, today I want to preach on all three readings. Uh, the reading from the Song of Solomon, which is most known in most uh, Western Christian circles as the Song of Songs or the Canticle of Canticles. And then to say something about the Epistle of James, which talks about uh, our interior, uh, our physical and interior, emotional, spiritual, and mental states, and how they govern uh, our behavior and what we might think about that. And then Mark's Gospel, where we have uh, a conversation about the Pharisees jumping Jesus and his followers for not observing. Uh, the strict uh, Jewish dietary laws, or at least the dietary laws and the, and the practices of the Pharisees who were near Jerusalem and not from the Galilee, because there's an inside baseball here that I'm not going to dwell on too much, but there it is. So the themes that will emerge, I hope, are uh, what is the nature of the bond of love between God and God's people? The importance of love between each other in our common life or personally and uh, in all of its manifestations. How is that important and in some ways? The other thing I want to begin with, though, is why in the world is the Song of Songs in the Bible in the first place? It's kind of erotic poetry. And uh, you need to know that the uh, medieval theologians, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, next to the Bible, it was the most frequently quoted biblical book in his theological writings. And the Song of Songs also appears uh, in some measure even in the deliberations of the Second Vatican Council. So it must have loomed large. St. Bernard of Clairvaux talked a lot about the Song of Songs. He preached a, a series of sermons about them. My Old Testament professor, uh, Father Hunt, Joseph Hunt, used to look and say, well, you might want to ask yourself, why in the world is this in the Hebrew Bible? <laughs> so it's called the Song of Solomon. And I, I, as I was writing the sermon this week, I came across this. Here's what I want to recommend. I do this from time to time. If uh, you want to know about the Bible, it's important to read the Bible. And also, it's important to have a version of the Bible that is annotated. That is to say, has some introductory material at the beginning and footnotes as you read so you understand the varieties of manuscripts and what they say and why they decided on this. So in the Episcopal Church, we read from a version called the New Revised Standard Version. And there is a Bible called the Oxford Annotated New Revised Standard Version, which has all of this. So there's a whole section in the beginning on the Song of Solomon, as there is on any of the biblical books. And it talks about, uh, the, 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 so I'm quoting now right from this biblical introduction, not from some commentary. The traditional attribution of the book to Solomon probably derives from references to Solomon in the poem and his reputation as the composer of songs and the owner of a large harem. 
So. The traditional attribution of the book to Solomon probably derives from references to Solomon in the poem and his reputation as the composer of songs and owner of a large harem. So when you read 1 Kings, we're doing this now in the daily office, and you'll see that uh, David has gone now to his ancestors and his son Solomon has become the king. And Solomon is praised for his wisdom. We just finished the story about the two women, one who stole the baby from a woman who was asleep because she had laid on her own baby and killed the baby. So she stole this woman's baby, and the woman whose baby she stole said, this is my child, and she said, no, this is your child. She substituted the dead one for, for the live baby. So they go to the king. And Solomon listens to their uh, pleas, and so he said, bring me a sword. And he, they give him a sword. He said, I'm going to cut this baby in two, and you get half, and you get half. And so one of the women said, no, 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 it's her baby. You can let her have the baby. And Solomon said, you're not the mother. She's the mother. So he was praised for his wisdom. But then throughout the story now we're going to hear of a lot of wives and concubines. So I suspect this is why this is here. And it may uh, give us some, some force and effect with regard to the erotic nature of the book. But there are some other things that I want to talk about. The, uh, the passage that Nancy read to you uh, at the liturgy was on the, our wedding invitation when we got married 31 years ago. And um, Nancy is a graphic designer, and so to get even more inside baseball, she knew somebody who had a private press, you know, hot lead. And she printed the invitation on this paper where you can see the aesthetics of this are substantial, the impress of the, of the type on the paper. We don't see that much anymore because guess what? We don't see much type any longer. Uh, we know a few people who actually went to the Chronicle building and got for virtually nothing a bunch of linotype machines and they have them in their living room because they have these outre presses, you know, that they do special books for and editions and all of this sort of stuff. It's now become a whole world like records, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So this passage was on our wedding invitation, or a section of it. And this passage appears uh, as one of the readings you can read at the wedding liturgy, at the marriage liturgy in the Episcopal Church, in the Book of Common Prayer. So why is it in the Bible, and how have we used it in ways uh, beyond maybe the original intention? Jewish commentators and interpreters understand what is being described in addition to the relationship between human beings as a description of the intensity of the relationship between God and Israel. God and God's people. And Christians have used this to talk about the intensity of the relationship between Christ and his church. 
modern interpreters tend to focus on the way in which we as human beings relate to one another and the various forms of love that we describe. You know, the Greeks, we have one word, love, in English, but the Greeks had four or five to describe the various kinds. And the one that's used mostly in the Bible is the Greek word agape, which means the love that is loved without regard to the loveliness of the object toward which that love is directed, or to say it in a more simple way, love that is not seeking a payback. It is selfless love, right? And in our personal life and relationships and marriages, uh, we're called to that, which is uh, sometimes the triumph of imagination over experience, right? And it's a very important thing to think about. I'm grateful to Mary because Henry Nouwen, Henry Henry Nouwen uh, died some years ago. He was a Dutch Roman Catholic priest. He wrote a lot of books. When I was in seminary, we read a number of them. The spiritual life has to do with the heart of existence. I find the word heart a good word. I don't mean by it the seat of our feelings as opposed to the seat of our thoughts. By heart, I mean the center of our being, the place where we are most ourselves, where we are most human, where we are most real. In that sense, the heart is the focus of the spiritual life. In Hebrew, when the, when in Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible speaks of the heart, they do not understand the heart merely as the seat of the emotions but also the seat of the intellect. And Edwin Friedman, who I talk about all the time, the rabbi who was a licensed marriage and family therapist for 30 years, said that what the research on the brain, recent research in the last 15 or 20 years shows us, is that thinking and feeling are simultaneous. So when somebody says, I feel like I want a donut, You think you want a donut. It's both, right? So we tend to use those things uh, in in that way. And most of the time, I believe, I agree with some recent readers, that uh, moral choices are made because of our emotional, intuitive sense and not because of our reason. And the people who want to hold up the importance of reason uh, don't, don't really uh, understand how that works because people have been tested about this. David Hume, the Scottish philosopher in the 18th century, said, reason is and ought to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. That has been debunked by a great many philosophers before him and after him. But there is something to that. Remember, before I went on vacation, I talked about the, the mahout riding the elephant. So the mahout steers the elephant, but he's on an elephant. So what he can do is steer the elephant. But if the elephant wants to go one way, 
really wants to go that way, the elephant is going to go that way. So the mahout is our reason. But the elephant is our intuition. Right? So when people get tested about what they think is a moral offense or not, they immediately respond. And then when they're pushed back, they create the reasons for why they hold that view. Interesting. It's not, it's not the truth, but it's an interesting way to think about uh, how people make moral choices. Do you believe what Glaucon believed, one of Plato's contemporaries, that you and I only do the right thing if we're afraid that we're being watched? So this has something to do, actually, with the way in which we uh, love one another. The unconditional nature of love that is spoken of in the New Testament uh, has to do with uh, being fairly consistent in the way in which we operate in, in that territory. And so uh, it's about the intensity of God's love for us and the call that each human being has to respond Episcopalians would say that finds its location in public worship and in our private prayer. That's how we nurture that uh, connection, even when it becomes ordinary and commonplace and routine. That somehow something uh, pops out. When I was in seminary my second year, uh, it, was, I, it was the first time in my life I had a crisis of faith. And everybody said, well, when you get into your middle or year in seminary, you're going to have a terrible crisis. They said this to me before. I said, not me. So I did. And I got to the place where I said to myself, if I have to walk into that chapel again, I am going to scream. So I said this to one of my classmates, and the bell rang for Evensong, and off we go. And I'm sitting in the, in the seat, and the first psalm was, I think it's Psalm 132, Lord, remember David and all the troubles he endured. <laughs> uh, the important thing about that is, is that I wouldn't have... Uh, if I wasn't there to hear it, I wouldn't have, right? So I thought that was an interesting thing because sometimes you feel what's, when something is said, it, it applies directly to you. Other times you listen to somebody say something and you think, I can't identify with that at all. It doesn't, doesn't resonate with me. So it doesn't. So James is talking about uh, the way in which we behave and act in a, in a moral fashion in community terms, Really? He talks about the importance of bridling the tongue. In the old spiritual life that I was taught, um, it, there was something called the custody of the tongue. That you exercise custody. In other places it would say custody over tongue and pen. Or nowadays, custody over tongue and flaming out on the internet, right? Or in an email. But somehow you need to uh, have some custody over that, you know? 
We need to have some custody over the eyes, some custody over speech, as I've said, some custody over many things that we do in relationship to other people and for ourselves. So whenever you read this stuff and think, though, it sounds kind of incomprehensible about taking care of orphans and widows and then uh, refraining from these things, these lists are not unique to the New Testament. They come from somewhere. So the biblical writer is taking a source that he knows or she knows about what it is that they understand good behavior. We're going to hear about this now in Mark's gospel. Paul, you, you know, gives you all these lists that, the, the, you know, you have, I have every day something, my to-do list, and then I used, to, I, I fell away from this, but now I create another list called things not to do. Don't do them. Right? So Paul has don't do lists and talks about fornication and adultery and blasphemy and thing. Well, he didn't invent this. He got it from uh, the Greek Hellenistic tradition that was part of where they lived. So here we have Jesus speaking to or being jumped by the scribes and the Pharisees. A Pharisee is a person who in their practice of the law are very meticulous and believe that they should in all, at all times be ready to be in the temple precincts. They should be ritually clean. So they have practices that they engaged in that uh, created that, that reality. So they look at Jesus and his followers and say, you're not doing these things that our ancestors said we were supposed to do. Well, Jesus is from the Galilee. And in the Galilee, there was a lot of Hellenism. And the practice of the Jewish law was present and people were observant, but they weren't as strict. So part of that isn't merely Jesus saying, you don't have to do this. Part of it was the saying is, we've already sat lightly on it. And Jesus then begins to say to them, these things come from a man-made tradition. And there are other things that are more important that we always need to focus on, like the proximity between the letter and the spirit. How far away are we from this? You know what the seven last words in the Episcopal Church are. We've never done it that way before. (laughs) Right? So I got to thinking about this passage in terms of what it means when we speak of the tradition and what's the difference between tradition with a capital T and traditionalism. I'm, I'm saying this to you. I'm going to tell you this up front. Part of Episcopalian 101 is I'm going to talk about it, one of these things. What does it mean when, it's, when St. Luke's identifies itself as from the Anglo-Catholic part of the Episcopal Church? What in the world does that mean? And people toss that around all the time. And to be frank, it, it is meaningless the way they speak of it. We identify ourselves that way, so we need to know why and what it means and why, it, why it's important and how we think about it. So we're going to say some things about that. But there is a difference between tradition and traditionalism. And uh, here's what a man named, this is Yaroslav Pelikan. 
He wrote a four-volume book on uh, the tradition, Christian tradition. And it was a have-to-read for me a long time ago. He says in one of the places in the book, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. G.K. Chesterton, you may have heard of, says, Tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking around. (laughs) Right? So it's important to understand how we hand on the tradition. And Jesus is speaking about that. You know, there's no evidence that Jesus was not observant in his, tradi- in his religious practice. But many of the things he did externally were to model certain ways of understanding the nature of the kingdom of God and who's in and who's out. And the tradition and traditionalism can often be the kind of thing that is exclusionary, particularly when you get into certain arcane practices that are sometimes part of Anglo-Catholic, right? Speaking personally about this, it can be a difficulty. Sir Thomas More, or if you're a Roman Catholic, St. Thomas More, said Latin isn't holy, it's just old. (laughs) So if you're a Roman Catholic of my vintage and you grew up, or at least at the tail end, you know, knew something about the old mass, you could say to yourself, well, this was beautiful, I liked it, and it was lovely, and we, you know, and a lot of say, well, we need to have it back, Right? We need to have it back. The same thing is true in the Episcopal Church. Well, there's a, we, we had a prayer book in 1979. That's no good. We need the one from 1928, right? And the one from 1928 preserves uh, the Anglican prayer book tradition, and this new thing is, you know, off the rails. So probably that has something to do with our confusing of tradition versus traditionalism. This is a problem, not just in the Christian faith and life. This is a problem in our own lives, our commonplace activities, the interrelationship between our families and friends and in the workplace. I've told you that story about Mason Williams on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour a long time ago. It dates me. And she said, I'm going to tell you a story. What is tradition? He didn't realize it was the wrong word to use. He said, I was at my mother's house, and she was preparing a leg of lamb, and I noticed the bone was sticking out of the leg of lamb, and she cut the sinew and folded the bone back and put it in the pan to roast the leg of lamb. And I said, Mom, why do you do that? And she said, well, when your grandmother uh, taught me how to cook a leg of lamb, this is what she did. So, as luck would have it, a couple of weeks later, we was at his sister's house, and she was going to cook a leg of lamb, and she cut the sinew, folded the bone back, 
put it in the pan, and, she, and I said, why do you do that? And she said, well, when your mother cooked a leg of lamb, this is always the way she prepared it and put it in the pan. So, as luck would have it, about a month later, he was at his grandmother's house, and she was cooking a leg of lamb, and he noticed that she uh, cut the thing and folded the, the, the bone back and put it in the pan, and he said, Grandma, why do you do that? And he said, she said, well, you know, honey, when your, fa your grandfather and I were first married, we didn't have a lot of money, and we only had a pan this big. <laughs> okay? Do you know people become sick or crazy over things like this? <laughs> I've had people in my office who went somewhere for Christmas, you know, some distant family member, and they got there, and they didn't do anything for Christmas like they do at home. Right? And they were bummed. You know? Well, I suppose you could grieve the loss of, you know, not folding the napkins a certain way. But really? <laughs> I'm saying all this because uh, the source of how we come to grips with this uh, is what, in one sense, uh, what Jesus says about this, and that is the, 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 uh, the, the, the coming together, the proximity of the spirit uh, versus the letter. And uh, the reason we don't have to do a lot of those things is because it frees us to love God unconditionally and return to God what we get from God. You know, worship isn't to get something. We don't do church to get something. I mean, we get, one hopes, some species of spiritual serenity and fulfillment. But it's not a superstitious practice. It's something that we give back to God because we love God. And we're grateful to God, you know. And I suppose the best thing to say is, is that when you speak to people who still believe that in the midst of great personal adversity and difficulty, it's awe-inspiring, isn't it, that they're able to have that faith, you know. The opposite of faith is not doubt. It's certainty. And so Christian people get together because of their faith in God and their grat gratitude that God loves us and accepts us unconditionally, forgives us. So think about that this week when you look at your own uh, traditions with a small t. Amen. Amen.